Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In her cover story for the magazine's summer issue, Lucy Jones writes about a renaissance of love for nature that arose during the pandemic in the midst of so much isolation and death. Why is it exactly that going into nature is so therapeutic? Jones's new book, Losing Eden, examines the wealth of scientific literature on the psychological effects of nature, from neurons to the whole nervous system. She joins us on the podcast to talk about her research into what we lose when we lose contact with nature. Thanks for talking to me, Lucy. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think what I enjoyed most about the book was how your love of nature is really contagious. And it was frankly difficult for me to not stop and go outside a bunch. And it's really intuitive, right? Um, going all the way back to E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis from the 80s. But I think one of the criticisms that he got and you might get and, you know, anybody who writes about nature will probably encounter is that like, isn't this really obvious? Like, of course, nature is good for you. Why do you have to write a whole book about it? So why did you write a whole book about it? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And it was definitely something which you know, I had the kind of inner critic saying, everyone knows nature's good for us. Um, you know, this is just kind of cultural and, and received wisdom. But I guess I can answer that in two ways. Um, firstly was the personal experience that I had, which led to writing the book, um, where I wasn't very well, I was in recovery and um, struggling with depression, anxiety. And I found that um, I kind of stumbled upon going walking in this marshland in East London uh, as a way which would help me get through each day. And alongside psychiatry, psychotherapy and and support groups, this um, experience of of connecting with nature for the first time really um, since childhood was so powerful that it really took me by surprise. Um, and I had, hadn't anticipated that, um, just spending time kind of with trees and, and watching kestrels and spending time looking at water could have a really significant and measurable effect on my mental health. Um, and I think the actual experience experience of finding that surprising was interesting to me that I'd got kind of so far along my like uh, deeply urbanized disconnected life that uh, I was taken aback by a natural environment being therapeutic and that started me in a way and yes we all probably know to, to, to varying extents that spending time in nature is good for us or going to the park on the weekend can be restorative or you know having a holiday by the sea is a nice thing to do but what I was really interested in and what I really wanted to do was to um kind of just delve really deeper and and find out exactly how and why spending time in natural environments affects our body and our minds um what's the mechanism I wanted to get under the hood and kind of look at the nuts and bolts of the relationship between, um, for example, awe and the brain or fractal shapes and our sense of well-being or 
being in the woods and the nervous system um i had this sense before i started to kind of do the research and, and look at the science um that being in that marshland uh was changing my brain chemistry and was changing my physiology and seemed to be soothing my nervous system and and while you know yes i had that idea that you know people know that i had no idea what what was actually happening um and so i think that when i started to read and found that actually there were many hundreds of scientists and disciplines across the world aren't asking the same question how and why does nature make us feel good um i realized that it it wasn't quite as kind of obvious or mundane or kind of banal it was actually really a really interesting area really varied and and quite surprising in some ways too i think almost every study that you cite and even your own experience of walking through nature kind of undermines the the way our our health system is set up you talk about the cartesian duality for medical treatment you know that the mind and body are separate and we treat these two halves of ourselves differently and I think that has generally come a little bit, I mean, it's eroded a little bit, I think, you know, today versus 50 or 100 years ago, but it is still really apparent. I mean, how do you see that in the research on how nature affects us? Mm. I mean, in a way, my kind of approach is influenced by that Cartesian duality because I was... Um, I was really focused on how nature affects our mental and emotional health. Um, I wasn't so interested in things that seem more obvious to me, like how exercise uh, affects affects the mind or um, how social contact, which is kind of one of the elements of, of nature-based therapeutic interventions, um, is good for our well-being. So even I was kind of siloing this um, mental and, and physical health aspect. For example, let's take something like inflammation. Studies show that when we spend time in natural environments, we have lower levels of inflammation. And while previously we might have thought inflammation was a purely physical uh, state for the body to be in, there's now research which shows that inflammation is associated with the brain and, and then mental health and psychiatric disorders. So it's kind of impossible to separate the two. It's a similar thing with the microbacteria um, I write about called Mvaki, a bacteria in the soil, uh, which when it's ingested can boost serotonin and give antidepressant-like effects. And while the research around the kind of gut-brain access is quite fledgling still, it seems quite clear that there is a uh, relationship between gut, brain and mental health and well-being. So I suppose the nature and health kind of discipline is mirroring, as you say, this kind of move towards bringing the body and the mind together. I'm glad you talked about eating dirt um, <laughs> and, and the health benefits thereof, because uh, it brings me to my next question, which is about how, I mean, I mean, your book is sort of structured along developmental lines, which I think was such a, a smart way to organize this vast literature. But fundamentally, what I came to realize is that if we just listened to what children were telling us or doing, we would be so much better off. 
this one study you talk about how in 2007, researchers just asked children what they wanted to be happy. And they said time, friendship, and the outdoors. And honestly, like, that's not very different from what I need to be happy. I feel exactly the same. And I have I have very young children now. And um, it's interesting to watch them and see how um, actually a kind of love of the living world and other species is innate. Um, and it's not something that needs to be taught, really. Um, it's kind of they're just automatically interested in the woodlouse under the doormat or the spider climbing up up the wall or so on and actually it's i think adults in our society which then educate children out of their inherent love um of the natural world and and you know that happens through cooping children up for the vast majority of their time and um Certainly in, in, in the UK, a kind of lack of environmental education or of direct experience of, of the living world. Um, and I like that you mentioned the eating dirt, um, work. So when I, when I, um, when I first read about that, I really thought the idea that soil could be some kind of antidepressant like, um, therapy is, was woo or very unscientific. Um, but the more I, the more I looked into it and I, I, I talked to some of the leading kind of microbacteria, microbiologists in the area. And it turns out that it's absolutely true that there's this bacteria in the soil, which in studies time and time again can be found to boost our serotonin. Um, so that might explain why if you love gardening, that's why you might have a buzz which lasts. Well, I mean, what do we know about the relationship between a childhood that isn't spent cooped up, that does have access to nature and a balanced adulthood. Mm. So we know that children who have access to nature um, and opportunities to spend time in the natural world are more likely to have uh, less uh, mental health or psychiatric problems later in life. We also know that children, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds, will benefit from nearby nature uh, and it can buffer the stresses of um, kind of a, a life of hardship. And we also know that opportunities to commune with nature in childhood is the kind of determining factor for whether you will continue to have a relationship in adulthood. And that's important for a few reasons. Um, I mean, firstly, the link between contact and connection with nature and physical and mental health is kind of unequivocal. But also, if children are allowed to love the living world as children and, and, and then adults, they're more likely to have an ethic of care for our environment. You know, we're living at a time of widespread um, destruction and, and species decline. And if children don't love trees or aren't, encouraged to know trees or have a kind of kinship with with other species trees plants other animals and so on why would they then want to save them yeah i was really intrigued by um the writing you did on the various forest schools in all kinds of places nowadays i mean i really you know i went to a kindergarten as most people did but it wasn't really a, a kindergarten in the way that these forest schools are 
No, neither did I. My my schooling was very um kind of classic tarmac playground. Um, I don't think we even had a nature table. I don't know if, if you guys had nature tables over there. It was quite common, like in a in a kindergarten, you'd have a table with and people would bring in you know shells and so on they found. Um, and so I think that this this rise and growth of forest school and outdoor education, which is happening in countries across the world is a relatively new thing and is also a really hopeful thing. In the UK, it's very much a grassroots movement where, you know, parents, teachers, educators are kind of pushing back against this this world we live in where kids are more likely to recognise, um, you know, the golden arches than an oak leaf. Um, a world where words like bluebell or conquer have been taken out of the Oxford um, Children's Dictionary because... You know, children don't use them anymore. So, so the forest school movement as well was, a, I think, a really hot, hopeful and optimistic and really important way of saying, you know, enough. Kids need nature and they need to be outside. I mean, so far we've been talking about how nature, you know, can influence people towards well-being if they're already in a, in a you know, relatively balanced, like normal state, whatever that means. Um, but at the beginning of our conversation, you alluded to a time when you were recovering from addiction. I mean, what do we know about how nature affects people who are suffering from various psychiatric conditions or are depressed or anxious? Mm. So we know that nature-based interventions, so that includes um, initiatives such as horticultural therapy, so in England, there's quite a long history, actually, um, really before uh, nature and health started being kind of measured with empirical peer-reviewed science of um, of treating people with various ailments, including um, depression, anxiety or um, illnesses like dementia or so on with uh, with gardening so spending time gardening and and enjoying the social contact and so on and the evidence from um those initiatives is very unequivocal these happenings this this time spent outside can be profoundly therapeutic for my research i visited a horticultural therapy program in a medium secure unit uh in england which means um it's kind of a a cross between a prison and a hospital um, for people who are very, very severely mentally unwell or in the and or in the criminal justice um, system in some way. And it was really striking interview and visit for me because while I think our culture and our society might think or or teach that nature contact is kind of a luxury that it's a frill or an optional extra or, you know, fine if you can afford it or, you know, all the best parks are in the affluent areas and it's kind of like a, a, a privilege or an extra. Um, you know, these people were probably the most unwell people I've, I've, I've ever met. And the horticultural therapist said something to me. She said, these nature therapies are always ring-fenced and always protected and always funded because... They know that if you take nature away from these people who live extremely nature-depleted lives in kind of cell blocks, they will just get even more ill. They really need it. Um, I know that 
for me personally and my my experience of depression anxiety and how nature helps um it's often a case of uh and i noticed this as well when i visited different kind of green therapy groups a quieting of self-critical voices a kind of a soothing and almost a kind of obliteration of the self you know tuning into something bigger something vaster a break for yourself a break from your anxious thoughts an escape as it were and there's one piece of evidence and and, and a study which uh is really interesting and speaks to this i think which is part of the early fledgling neuroscience of nature and health there were two study groups and one walked through a natural environment for 90 minutes and one walked through a kind of very urban environment for 90 minutes and those who worked through the natural um environment had less uh, activity in the subgenual prefrontal cortex which is an area of the brain associated with um the self and rumination and brooding and those people also had less self-reported rumination and brooding and i think that goes some way in explaining why nature can be helpful for people with depression anxiety that it can um give that side of the brain a bit of a break saying that i think it's really important to make the point and i do this in the book that um it's not as simple as saying go out into nature and your depression and your anxiety are going to be cured mental health is very complex nature is very complex and there are you know systematic uh barriers for different communities who don't feel welcome in natural spaces and you know there are different conditions that or different life experiences that might mean kind of going to a wood or something might you know not be not be particularly good it's complicated still i take antidepressants as well as you know relying on having a nature dependency these days you know it's not as simple as you know ditch your pills and just look at the trees but the overwhelming evidence is that nature can affect us from our heads to our toes and that even if we aren't like nature nerds like like i am background nature unintentional nature being on a tree-lined street living in a an area with access to a park does have dampening effects on rates of mental illness in populations it is really complicated and it does make me think of all the exciting ways in which access to nature can also prepare you mentally for the other things that make you feel better you know like if you're not focusing on your inner monologue and you're focusing on nature, that almost prepares you for social interactions, which also help. You know, it's almost like laying the table for the rest of the program. That's such a good way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really glad you talked about inequality of access, because even if you could go outside, you might not be able to go to a park. You know, you might live in a, you know, public housing that doesn't prioritize trees or thinks it is a frill. How does that affect people's outcomes? Sure. So we know that pretty much across the board, um, more affluent areas have better. Uh, I hate the phrase green space, but that's the phrase that's in all the uh, academic literature. So, um, uh, yeah, to put it another way, more affluent areas have more access to, to trees and parks and gardens and so on. Um, and people living in poverty, uh, in in, uh, in communities that don't have that access, um are not being given the same opportunities to um, recover from the stresses of life. And we know that people 
recover more quickly and more completely from stress in the natural environment and people living uh, in disadvantaged communities are more stressed than those who aren't and then throw in the fact that they you know will be living in quite kind of urban often hard tarmac areas they're not being given those those opportunities um in england and uh i know it's similar in in the us and for different reasons the countryside can feel really hostile to people um from different backgrounds such as black and minority ethnic backgrounds or those from lower socioeconomic groups nature here can seem like quite a kind of luxury middle class white thing to do um there's not enough dialogue with different communities uh, in urban areas about um, how to how to kind of make uh, natural environments more accessible and more restorative. And also, well, over here, we are forbidden from accessing 92% of the land. We have very kind of strong laws on trespass and, and ownership. So there is a sense here because it's it you know there's a lot of inequality that the countryside and beautiful areas of nature are quite cut off from people it's quite elitist and the outcomes therefore are simply that they kind of entrench the outcomes that we already know happen with inequality you know, poverty is the worst thing for someone's health throw in like for example two million people in england don't live within walking distance of a park or a green space you are actually creating a kind of public health crisis and the environmental injustice literature is starting to to look at this question a little bit more whereas previously economic injustice would look a lot more at like air pollution water pollution all, all those very important aspects but now the science is showing how important nature is for our mental health um researchers and scientists are starting to think about you know how harmful is it for someone to live in a in a tower block without trees you know we, we're starting to get to the point where we can really measure that and we can say it's not okay yeah well i mean one of the more intriguing and honestly radical questions in your book is is whether connection to nature can actually reduce those socioeconomic or even racial health inequalities what did you find um yeah so this is probably one of the most important areas of work I think it was described to me by someone as a beautiful study which you don't really get academic studies <laughs> described like and it's this concept equigenesis which was developed by um, Rich Mitchell and Frank Popham who are academics over here and they studied a population in the northeast of England who um, were living in relative deprivation and, and disadvantage but they seem to be doing a lot better um health-wise, well-being-wise, than than they would have expected. And when they looked closer, they found that the resilience that this community seemed to have was likely due to their access and proximity to, quote, green space or, or, or the rest of nature. And so they concluded that access to nature can actually weaken... We have links in the show notes to Lucy Jones's cover story, Rewilding Our Minds, as well as her new book, Losing Eden, Our Fundamental Need for the Natural World and Its Ability to Heal Body and Soul. 
We also have links to some really cool ways to get into nature yourself with foraging, something that I have done a lot of in the past year, as well as some of the obstacles that minorities, especially Black people, face in the United States when going into the outdoors. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.